When the legislature convenes in January, the 160-member House of Representatives will include 21 first-term lawmakers. One of them, however, will stand out from the crowd when it comes to the amount of time spent in the trenches as a political activist before making the jump to elected office. 68-year-old Kate Donahue, a Democrat from Westboro, will be among the new state reps, but she is hardly a new face on the political scene. Donahue has spent more than 40 years as a committed foot soldier for countless Democratic candidates. Her canvassing on behalf of those candidates is so legendary that the Boston Globe once called her the Cal Ripken of Democratic door-knocking. So what's it like to go from campaign foot soldier to candidate? I'm Michael Jonas from Commonwealth Magazine, and we are delighted to have soon-to-be State Representative Kate Donahue here on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for that kind introduction. So you're on the verge of making this transition from sort of decades, uh, you know, in the trenches or behind the scenes. Uh, what, what, uh, what led you after all this time working on behalf of candidates to become one yourself? Well, um, as we often hear in politics, geography is destiny. On redistricting created a new seat in my area that consisted of most of Westboro, three quarters of Northboro, all of Southboro and a neighborhood in Framingham. And so I found myself in that incredibly rare situation of a new, no incumbent district where I lived in the community with the biggest single voting block. It seemed an opportunity to take my years of action as you mentioned as a behind the scenes activist, well, not always behind the scenes, but as somebody who was working to elect people who share my values, was working, taking part in lobby days, scheduling lobby days to influence legislation. It was a unique opportunity for me to actually be directly involved as a legislator. And what was that transition like to go from being so involved in campaigns, but to now be the kind of focal point of one? Oh, it's challenging. You often hear that somebody who's got a lot of experience tends to try to be their own campaign manager. I was very intentional about saying, you know, don't micromanage this campaign. Listen to the people who are running it. And for anybody, being a candidate is kind of a unique position. You always hear that the candidate's time is your single most valuable resource, and you have to let people tell you how to use that time, yet you're still the CEO of the organization. So in one aspect, you're like an hourly employee. In another aspect, you're running it, and you have to wear both hats. That's pretty much true for anybody. But I think it's particularly challenging for people who are used to making the nitty-gritty decisions about walk routes and things like that. Hard to make that transition. Right. And things like walk routes, as I've read, are, you know, something you're, you're pretty well versed in. Uh, I mean, I don't know if you, if you, uh, if, if they had the kind of Fitbits or those kind of watches that track your steps. Uh, I don't know how many steps or miles you've logged over the 40 years. Well, certainly over the 40 years, I don't know, not even over this campaign. Although I did track the number of days I knocked on doors and I knocked on doors for 262 days. And from the time the nomination papers were available until Tuesday a week ago, I knocked on doors every single day except for six. Um, I knocked on doors on Mother's Day. I knocked on doors on Father's Day. 
I knocked on doors on 4th of July and Memorial Day, but I did take Easter Sunday off. Not so much because I wanted to, but out of respect for the voters. Right. And what is it you learn? I mean, you know, you often hear politicians say, you know, that that they learn the most by listening, by talking to people, meeting people where they are. I guess going to people's doors is literally meeting them where they are. What is it that, you know, the years of canvassing taught you about how to engage with people? And then how did you sort of then apply that as a candidate yourself? Well, it was interesting. The years of canvassing taught me the mechanics of it. I, I wrote a 60-point document on how to canvass everything from the approach, how to look at the house, how to decide which door to go to, and you know, nitty-gritty things like that. And that experience put me in good stead. The kinds of things you learn are the kinds of things I'm sure you hear from, from other people. I heard people talk about their struggles with childcare. I heard people talk about struggles with caring for aging parents. My mom's going to be 94 next month. And so that was something that I could, I could identify with. And I heard from a number of people who had to quit their jobs to care for children with disabilities who are aging out of the system. And one of the things that a former legislator mentioned to me is that in addition, in addition to hearing the stories, you learn the neighborhoods. So if somebody mentions a street in anywhere in my district, I have a picture of it. I know where, where it is. I have a sense of what the neighborhood is like. So you're learning the geography of your district in a way that if you were not doing that kind of door knocking, you just wouldn't know as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, so there's kind of, a, you know, you, the, the document you wrote is kind of maybe the science of uh, door knocking. I mean, in some way you can break it down to uh, those those elements. I, I Again, I think in that Globe story I read about, you know, kind of your approach to, you know, you, you don't even necessarily walk around on the sidewalks unless it's a freshly planted grass. You know, you minimize the steps to get in as many doors as you can. <laughs> Everybody's after the Globe article, everybody said I should stop cutting across. You may lose votes, right? There's the old get off my lawn line. Um, but there's the science of it. And then I guess there's the other part that's not so much science as I don't know if it's art or just the human part that you're talking about that you you just kind of learn, uh, you know, to you know, that people will often kind of open up if they're receptive to hearing, you know, your pitch, you know, they, they're as eager to talk to you as to hear what you have to say. They want to tell you what's on their mind. And, and you often hear candidates say that that's how they really learn or, you know, all these kind of cliches, like getting the pulse of a community to really understand what's going on and what people's worries are. And people, people appreciate that you've made the effort to talk to them even if they don't want to talk about issues, even if they don't open up. I shouldn't say I was surprised, but I found that exactly as I expected, it wasn't always about the issues or our discussion, but about the simple fact that I had made myself available and was making that effort. Right. And how did you uh, sort of get involved in politics? It dates back at least, you know, I think I read to maybe 40 years or so. What, what, what led you into this world? Well, I had been involved in politics and growing up. I went door to door with my dad. It was very different back then. 
I look at it and we didn't knock on doors. We just dropped off flyers and we didn't have a voter list. We just went to every single door and just dropped off the flyer, whether they were voters or not, whether they were citizens or not, whether they were likely to vote. So um, I did that as a child and in high school. And this was in Quincy that I read? In Quincy. My dad had been very active in the Democratic Committee of Quincy, the Quincy City Committee, when he was first married and raising a family, but realized, you know, he wanted to spend more time with his family and cut back on his activity. But we were involved occasionally as, you know, literally children. And uh, I was thinking back to the school committee candidate that I helped out when I was in the fifth grade. And she did thank you parties for the adults. She did a couple of thank you parties for her children volunteers. And when I look back at that, as an adult, I'm impressed with what she did. I didn't think too much about it in fifth grade. I kind of moved a little bit away from politics when I started college and actually got very involved in the hiking community. And then I got re-engaged in politics in 1981 when um, Michael Dukakis was running for re-election. And Governor Dukakis called me the other day to congratulate me. And I reminded him that it was really his campaign that got me, that got me re-engaged in politics as an adult. And uh, so that was, uh, it was good to look back. So literally 1981. So how many years is that? 40, 41, I think. Or 40, no, no, more than 41. Uh, 40, yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. 81 to 2002. Yeah. So you've, you've then, you know, been involved in the years you've many years in Westboro. I know you've served in, you know, been an active member in town, town meeting, uh, involved in the democratic party at the state level and even at the national level on the, uh, is that right? The democratic national committee. It's on the democratic national committee for eight years. And you've, have you attended national democratic conventions? Oh yes. Always interesting. Uh, how many have you been to? Uh, let's see. I did 2000 as a Bill Bradley delegate. I attended the convention in 2004 as a volunteer. And then in 2008 as a delegate again. And then in 2012, I attended as DNC elect. And 2016 and 2020 were as super delegates by virtue of my DNC membership with vast changes in the role of DNC delegates. And then 2020 was of course virtual. Big disappointment, but so I guess that adds up to six national conventions. That's, that's a lot. And so in the campaign, uh, and I, I should just sort of note to give listeners the background, if, I, if I'm understanding correctly in this newly redrawn district, you uh, actually ran unopposed in the Democratic primary and then Faced a Republican opponent in the uh, in the in the recent November eighth general election and and won that race by something in the neighborhood of two to one margin, and so um, but uh, in in terms of the campaign, I know you you highlighted issues around um, uh, climate change and the environment, which as you said has been a longstanding interest of yours, also public education. Uh, but in some ways, I don't know if it was sort of the first issue you raised, but, you know, you, you became, have become really well known for your uh, advocacy around healthcare issues and in particular dealing with the opioid crisis um, and, and a lot of that uh, coming out of, you know, the 
the horrible experience that you had with your son. Brian, can you talk a little about that? Sure. As you mentioned, I lost my son, my only child, to an overdose. He passed away in 2018 after a number of years of struggling. And I've been active in politics, as you mentioned, for many years before the, um, the issue around the opioid crisis came up. And when Brian was first struggling, there's so much, there's so much stigma that I was reluctant to talk about it at first. There's an article that floats around the internet, something like, nobody brings you casseroles when your child is an addict. And I remember being with my son in Texas after he had major back surgery, I could see talking to him and they put him on a, this wasn't how he got addicted, but they put him on some serious painkillers because of his back surgery. And with no real plan to really transition him off of these drugs, he'd been struggling with depression. And I remember flying back from Texas and the plan, he couldn't stay in Texas because he needed six to nine months of convalescence for his back surgery. And I just felt so powerless seeing his depression, seeing his struggles with substance use disorder and predicting correctly that this wasn't going to be an easy, an easy path. As I flew back from Texas, all I could think of was nobody brings you casseroles when your child is an addict. Several months later, he had an active suicide attempt. And, you know, it was interesting. While he was hospitalized for back surgery in Texas, I found Facebook uh, an easy way to stay in touch with family and my 5,000 closest friends, giving them daily updates on Brian's condition. A few months later, he tries to kill himself and he's in the intensive care unit. And there's so much stigma about depression, suicide, that I told virtually no one for the first several days. And just such a world of difference that I was very, very cognizant of. And there are reasons that people want to be quiet about something as sensitive as depression, suicide attempt. And in many ways, it was really Brian's decision to make. And that was one of the reasons I was quiet about it. Eventually, as I learned more about substance use disorder, and I talked to friends, people told me, um, I think of one person in particular who said, Kate, you have a voice, use it. And I started being more active. I started talking to elected officials about the challenges Brian was, fa was facing in our family. And it puts a face to it. You talked about my years of experience. When they see somebody that they've known as an activist, and then they're hearing about, you know, struggling, as I said, it puts a face to it. And I still remember, you, might, you must know Roger Lau, but yes. Roger said to me, Roger said to me, Kate, you have a voice, use it. So I spent the next, the next several years um, balancing Brian's Brian's privacy with the need for advocacy. And then after, after he died of an overdose in 2018, um, I, was, I was able to be even more active than I had been in issues of advocacy. And I know just from, you know, watching things that you, you know, you became very uh, willing to talk about 
what you were going through and all of this on Facebook uh, with uh, the community there and elsewhere. And Roger Lau, I should just say, was played a lot of roles in Democratic politics, but was a top aide to Elizabeth Warren and and eventually her campaign manager in her presidential race. So again, uh, a, a a big player in in uh, Democratic politics here in Massachusetts. And um, it said that that experience and and then your son's death is part of what propelled you into sort of taking the leap to jump into running yourself. Is that correct? Well, absolutely. It's an issue where I think there's a need for advocacy. On the other hand, I can't say that if that hadn't happened, if I hadn't had that experience, if life had not taken me in that direction, if I was sitting here retired in an open seat, (laughs) I think that there's a good chance I would have run either way. Right. And so I'm just curious how you're sort of approaching this. I sort of have the feeling that that for someone to have spent the amount of time and hours you've given to candidates for office, that that suggests to me that there's still a certain idealism you must have about the ability to make change and that, you know, this work can make a difference. And at the same time, you're going in as a, as I said, as a freshman on Beacon Hill, but I would think you're kind of going in with your eyes maybe open wider than others about you know, kind of how things really work there. So how do you, how do you sort of balance sort of still what I think is sort of an idealism about the ability to make change, but also kind of a realism about, you know, how the sausage gets made or, or how things really work? Well, it's interesting. I, I think that part of the balance is what you've alluded to. There are limits to how much a first year rep can can actually accomplish, uh, how much anyone in their first term can accomplish. I'm hopeful that the years I've spent working to elect people will position me better to have discussions with people. I expect that I'll know more of the elected officials than any of the other first years. Additionally, I can guarantee you that I probably actively campaigned for more of them than any other first year. I, I was looking the other day at just how many of them I knocked on doors for or made phone calls for or generally worked with them. You, you mentioned the Boston Globe article and calling me the Iron Woman of canvassing. I sometimes joke that some people have life lists of bird species they've seen. I keep a life list of towns in Massachusetts where I've knocked on doors. So you've been, uh, it's taken you much farther afield than just sort of the communities around you in Westboro to, to all kind of corners of the state. I've knocked on doors from Pittsfield for Trisha Farley Bouvier to the Cape for Dylan Fernandez to Haverhill for Andy Vargas. Um, I've knocked on doors all over the country after you asked about conventions. Beginning with the Colorado convention, I made a point of trying to find local people where I could knock on doors for, you know, my presidential candidates. I've knocked on doors in Denver, Colorado, as well as Philadelphia. Obviously, we didn't make it out to Wisconsin. Couldn't knock on doors virtually. Right. I mean, I've read that. And what, I mean, what, what drives you to do that work? Because I talked also to, uh, to Gus Bickford, the, the chair of the state party, and he said, you know, uh, there's a lot of 
people who are who talk the talk, but I mean, canvassing, you literally walk the walk. I mean, just to sort of day after day, not just now in your own campaign, but all these other campaigns. What leads you to do that? I started the kind of doors every day thinking back in 2010. I was helping a candidate who was running for state rep against an entrenched Republican. And I asked then party chair John Walsh, um, I said, any suggestions? And he said, just have your guy knock on doors every day, every single day, even if it's just one door. And I, I never could get my candidate to do that. But then when Elizabeth Warren was running, I said, you know, maybe I'll just set that as a standard for myself. And so I knocked on, I can't remember, you might remember better than I can, but in the Globe article, I remembered how many days I knocked on doors for. 45 in a row, it said. And, and then the next year, 53 in a row for Ed Markey. <laughs> yes. And I, I have my notebook somewhere, but I, I, unfortunately, I had to take six breaks for various reasons in my, my 262 days of door knocking. I forget what my streak is. But after I knocked on doors for Ed Markey, I said, I'm never going to do this again. <laughs> and, Did that last or not? <laughs> it doesn't seem like that, that pledge has lasted. It's, you know, you ask why I do it. And, and there are a number of reasons why I do it. Um, so the, the, the knocking on doors to elect candidates I support, um, I do it because I want to elect people who share my values. I do it because it's, it's one of the most effective ways for a volunteer to elect people who share their values. And then I do it for the exercise. <laughs> I lost more than 25 pounds during this campaign. So uh, one of the reasons some people knock on doors is for the exercise. And I have a group of people that I've knocked on doors with. In 2015, I brought an informal group of people together who just sometimes had more time during the week than we did on weekends we would go canvassing together on Wednesdays. And I started this group during um, a special Senate election in Brockton. And then we fairly quickly ended up, um, my little group canvassing for Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire, first in the primary and then in the general election. After Donald Trump got elected, I obviously, he was not somebody who shares my values. And I'm saying, what can I do to make a difference? What can I individually do? And I decided to make that group a year-round effort. And so since um, December of 2016, continuing through this week, we've done some sort of democratic political activity every week, except um, sometimes, but not always, we give them Christmas week off. <laughs> I always thought that was generous of me. Yes, that is absolutely. And so what do you hope will happen, you know, in, when you when you're uh, in the legislature and do you have do you have thoughts about how how long you hope to serve and what sort of goals you have for what you think you can get done there? We haven't really made any decisions about how long to serve. I'll have to see how it goes. I have to see what other people are interested. I am 68 years old, as you mentioned. Um, I was happily retired. It wasn't something where I was saying, hey, I want another full-time job. <laughs> right. But it was, it was just an important opportunity. 
And I hope to make a difference to the people of Northboro, Southboro, Westboro, and Framingham in the issues that I've talked about, healthcare, especially caring for our seniors as we age, supporting caregivers. I've talked about the people I've met caring for children with disabilities. I hope to make a difference in supporting education. And there are just so many areas where I have strong feelings. As a campaigner, I talked about having to listen to, you know, what I might call handlers. And they said, you've got, you've got to focus on three things. And <laughs> so the three things that I talked about were right. healthcare, education, and climate change. But right. so many other things that I care about, housing, transportation, voting rights, and hunger. There are just so many things where you can make a difference. I talked about how I, I moved away from the political world when I was in college. I was very active in the hiking community, first hiking and then getting involved in trail maintenance and then quickly getting involved in hiking, not so much hiking, but in committee work, board work, fundraising, membership development. Um, I built a lot of skills in the environmental world that I eventually used in politics. In the late 80s, early 90s, I was very involved in a protection effort of the Long Trail in Vermont, where now uh, more than 25,000 acres of land are in permanent public ownership. It was a really important effort that was truly a public-private cooperation. And I love working with nonprofits. It's nonprofits do things that government just couldn't do. But after my experience with that organization, especially with the, um, the Long Trail Protection Effort, I said, if I want to make a difference in the issues that I really care about, I need to focus more politically, health care, climate change, and all of the things that I care about, just social justice. And I felt that I needed to make a difference politically. And do you think do you think about what it'll be feel like in January when you walk into the state house? I mean, I'm sure you've been there countless times lobbying and in meetings and to suddenly be there and now you're representative Donahue. Do you think about that in some ways? And what does that make you feel like? You know, I think more about the details. Um, just it's starting a new job. It's it's going to be a challenge. Um it's going to be a little bit of a transition from being retired to having a full-time job. Having said that, I have been campaigning full-time since, since January. It's just a little different, more than a little different when, you know, on a campaign, at least on a campaign that's focusing largely on door knocking, a lot of your schedule is your own. Uh, it's going to be very different as a, as a legislator. I'm going to have to commute, which I haven't done in years. Right, right. Well, um, we'll look forward to checking in with you on Beacon Hill and, and seeing how it's, how it's going to go, uh, how it's going as, uh, you know, probably one of the most experienced freshman lawmakers to, to, to hit Beacon Hill in some time. Uh, so Kate, Kate Donahue, uh, incoming state rep from Westboro, thanks so much for talking to us on the podcast. Thank you. And thank you all for listening. We will see you again next week.